1: Hey everyone, welcome to the Inspired Fire podcast. My name is Chris and I'm your host. Today we have JL Collins joining us on the show. For those who don't know him, he is the author of the book, The Simple Path to Wealth, and he's very well known for his stock series as well on his website, jlcollinsnh.com. He is the godfather of investing to the fire community, and that's why I'm super excited to have him on the show to talk about investing, everything investing, as well as how to handle investing uh, during difficult times uh, like we're going through now. So before we get into that, I would like to touch on a couple of things, though. Um, I do want to announce two winners for the giveaway. So if you follow me on Instagram at Inspired Fire, uh, you saw that I'm doing a giveaway of the Simple Path to Wealth book. Um, I'm really excited to get that book into people's hands. So today, I'm giving that book away to two people, and the next episode, it's going to be two or three other people as well. So just get those reviews uh, on Apple Podcasts in. That's how you sign up, to sign up for the giveaway. So just uh, go ahead and leave your review on Apple Podcasts and send me a screenshot. So without further ado, the two winners is JF Meeks and Flex Eat Repeat. So congratulations I'll be sending your book out soon um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that there are there's uh, an awards right now for called the Plutus Awards they're basically like the Oscars for personal finance and I'm up for two categories I really want uh, hope that you guys can nominate me for the first one is best new personal finance blog and the second one is best new personal finance podcast um, so if you can, I'll go ahead and put the link in the show notes and support me in any way you can. That's uh, just by going there and nominating me, um, putting there Inspire to Fire. And uh, again, I'd really appreciate your support. All right. So without further ado, let's get into this episode where we talk about investing with JL Collins and handling uh, difficult times, recession and bear markets. Hey, JL, thank you so much for joining the show and um, welcome. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Chris, and I'm honored that you'd ask. I mean, I'm, I'm super excited to have you on. I, I highly regard you. I, I put you up there um, in terms of Warren Buffett, Jack Bogle, and then comes you. And, and that's just, I, I'm, I really mean that when I say that. But uh, so it's an honor to have you on. And, and I'm excited to share with the audience your simple path to wealth and all the, the essentials that we need for investing and to get it right.
0: Well, I, that's, that's elite company you've, you've put me in. I hope I can live up to
1: it within <laughs> our
0: conversation today.
1: I'm sure. I'm sure you will. Um, so what got you started, and I think what became very popular for you and, and on your blog was the stock series. So I think I want to start there. What made you write the stock series, and, and how did that come about? Well, the
0: whole blog came about as, as a way to archive information for my, my daughter. Uh, so that when the time come, came that she had an interest in this stuff, it would be available to her whether I was around uh, to deliver it personally or not. And then the, the stock series sort of grew out of that. And I think what's interesting about it, it's now up to 30 or 33 or something uh, posts. But when I originally started it, only the first, my vision for it was only the first five. That's kind of uh, my plan when I was creating the series. It would be a five-part series, and I didn't really think beyond that. And the rest of the posts after the fifth one came out of suggestions and questions from my readership who well, evolved my thinking on on topics that, that they wanted to hear about and that would be worth discussing. So that's how we wound up with 30+. plus.
1: <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean, they're 30 great or 30-plus great uh, posts, so that kind of led to the book is that correct? the simple path to wealth, which I want to congratulate you on it, today's june twenty twenty and uh, the book just turned four years old and it's made such an impact on so many people I think you've sold over fifty thousand copies if i 'm not mistaken um,
0: yeah actually actually uh, over one hundred and sixty thousand wow uh, yeah, at, so. this conversation and the the book's first fourth birthday was uh June 18th which mm-hmm. I just happened to to notice myself uh, a few days before it so I, I marked it on uh, Twitter and, and Facebook and and uh, the it to my amazement it it is sold better uh, each year so it, each year it sells better than the year before and uh, I don't really do anything to promote it I suppose the blog promotes it and maybe having conversations like the one we're having does but now I don't do any, any real aggressive promotion on it. So I chalk it up to word of mouth and mm-hmm. and it's gotten really favorable reviews on Amazon. So I think all of that helps, but uh, nobody's more amazed at its success than I am. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, the simplicity of it is is amazing. The content of course is amazing. And you've said that there's nothing really in the book that is not in the stock series. It's just more organized. Is that, is that right? Well,
0: uh, yes, except that, that it's not just the stock series. There are, there are parts of the book that are drawn from the blog other than the stock series. Mm-hmm. So the core of the book is drawn from the stock series, but, but it's not exclusively from the stock series. But gotcha. your point is still correct. There is nothing in the book that you can't find on the blog. Uh, the book is more concise. It's better organized um i spent more time polishing the writing i'll leave it up to readers to decide whether i succeeded or not but those are the three advantages if you will of the book but by design there is nothing in the book that uh you can't find on the blog i didn't and that goes against by the way the advice i was given at the time which was to be sure to put things in the book that are not on the blog so people have to buy your book right and I kind of thought to myself, you know, the only reason that this book exists is that I have loyal readers who have read and supported the blog, and it just seemed to me to be kind of a crappy thing to do to them, to, to have information that they had to pay for. So um, that's why I chose not to do it. And then, interestingly, if you look at my, some of my one-star reviews on Amazon, or two-star reviews, some of the negative reviews that's one of the criticisms as well. You know, there's, this is just a rehashing of the blog and okay. I guess so.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I love it. I think that's very honorable. A lot of people would have chosen the other route for sure. Um, well, but
0: that's, certainly, that's certainly the advice that you're given.
1: Yep. Um, so let's kind of get into that because my goal is to share with the audience exactly what your investing advice is, why I think it's so important. And, and really it's, it's, um, one of the pillars or one of the core foundations to the fire community, I think. So let's just, if we can get into some of the background and how you learned to invest, how long have you been investing, where did these things come from, how did you become so knowledgeable in this aspect?
0: So uh, that's, that's a, uh, you covered a lot of ground in that question. <laughs> so let me, let me see if I can remember all of it uh, to respond. And if I don't, remind me. Um, so I started investing in 1975, and what's mildly interesting about that, at least to me, is very coincidentally that's the same year that Jack Bogle started Vanguard, and the same year he launched the world's first index fund, which was the S and P 500 fund. Um, so I'm self-taught in in investing. It's not it was not my subject of study at at university and. And it's been an avocation uh, rather than a vocation for me, at least until these recent years with the blog. And uh, if I know anything about this stuff, it's because I have made every possible mistake you could make in investing. And uh, <laughs> so, so it's it's that accumulation of, of of knowledge. I, I you know I, I look back and I think, man, I wish I had written this book. A lot of people tell me they wish they'd read the book when they were. When they were 40 if they're 50 or 30 if they're 40 and on down the line. I wish I'd written it when I was 30, but I wouldn't have been able to write it when I was 30. I don't think I, I had the knowledge base to write it and, until uh, uh, when I did, but uh, that's the evolution of it. And then the book itself looks at that, that microcosm of time between 1975 in 2015, which is really sort of the final stages of writing it for the illustrations. But it's a very instructive 40-year period, I think, because uh, the market did very well in that 40-year period, but it also faced major, major challenges uh, in that 40-year period. And the point of that is simply that the market does not
1: need ideal conditions in order to, to rise and rise significantly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and um like you mentioned there's been a lot that happened during the, those 40 years so you're uh pretty well known or or a lot of people know you to say things like the market will always bounce back or the market always goes up and that could be viewed as pretty controversial at first if somebody tells you hey this is always going to go up um but you know can you explain a little bit about why you you know you say that that to, to your audience Sure.
0: So uh, that, is, that is one of the statements that, that has gotten the most pushback that I've made. And because people delight in saying, well, you can't say that, it will always, that anything will always do something, blah, blah, blah. And I suppose that's true. So the big caveat in saying the market will always go up is the market will go, always go up as long as, and I'm talking about the U.S. market now, as long as the United States of America is a capitalist country with a viable economic system uh, and that it exists as a country. So if you don't believe that the United States itself has a future, then you're probably right to be cautious about my statement that the market is always going to go up. But if you do believe the United States has a future, then... Almost by definition, the market will recover from anything that that fate throws at it. Mm-hmm. And that is the history of the market and, and the United States. The United States has gone through some terrible things. We're going through one at the moment. Uh, and the market always rebounds. The other thing that your listeners should understand is that when the market drops, this is a perfectly natural part of the process. The market is a volatile animal. So uh, when the market drops 10%, that's commonly called a correction, fairly common event. Drops 20%, that's called a bear, bear market. Little rare event, but still common. When it drops 30 plus percent, that's a crash. Uh, not nearly as common, but certainly should never surprise anybody. You know? It's, you know, I used to live in New Hampshire and, and the corollary I draw is that if you live in New Hampshire, you should never be surprised by blizzards in winter. It's just part of living in New Hampshire. doesn't mean the blizzards can't be dangerous. and doesn't mean that they're pleasant, but they should never surprise you. And nobody assumes that a blizzard, even at the worst, is going to last forever. As we know from experience, it doesn't. It's the same thing with stock of market declines and if you happen to live in Florida, you can use hurricanes instead of blizzards.
1: I just so happen to live in Florida, so I will use that. <laughs> so it's hurricanes for you and blizzards yeah. for my old friends in, in New Hampshire. <laughs> and, and yeah, and you touched on it, we are going through a, a difficult time uh, as far as the pandemic and um, so I kind of wanted to see what your thoughts were on that because I didn't really, I wasn't invested in a lot of people on, in my audience weren't invested in 08. Um, mm-hmm. I hear that 08 was a difficult time, of course, and, and I saw it, but I wasn't invested. So I didn't feel that panic or that fear. Um, but going through this recent uh, market correction or crash, you, I, I did get a sense of it, but I, I felt unusually calm through the whole thing. So I'm not sure if that is uh, a true test of what a real bear market feels like or what 08 might've felt like or could it get a lot scarier? So it could definitely get a lot
0: scarier and, and we'll talk about, I'll talk about 08 in a, in a second because this one is currently playing out and might be one of the reasons that it hasn't felt quite as scary is that while it dropped very, very sharply, it also rebounded for the most part, very, very sharply. Uh, and the 07, 08 scenario was, was a little different. I mean, it, it dropped very, very suddenly, and then it kept grinding on down. So to put 08 in perspective, um, the, the market hit bottom in 2009 in March of 2009 and it hit bottom around 600 and I think it was actually 666. Uh, was the actual number when it hit bottom, but and at that point, uh, it had dropped about fifty percent wow, and so people look back on that and they say, Well, you know, could I absorb a fifty percent drop and not panic and sell and and cut and run and by the way, nobody should follow my advice unless they are absolutely certain that they won't panic sell when the market goes down lest they absolutely accept the idea that the market always comes back and that plunges no matter how dramatic they are a natural part of the process. Because if you panic and sell in the middle of a drop, then my advice will leave you bleeding by the side of the road. But the perspective that people need to understand is that when the market hit that bottom in March of 2009, nobody knew that that was the bottom at the time. And we all know it now, but nobody knew it then. Mm-hmm. Everybody that I was talking to in March of 09 was predicting that it was going to continue to drop and buy a lot more. Most of the most common predictions I was hearing from, quote unquote, the smart people were that it was going to go down another two thirds. Now let's put some numbers on what that looks like and how it might feel. Let's suppose you started Uh, Before the drop, with, and I'll make, I'm choosing these numbers to make the math easy. Let's say you had 1.2 million uh, in your portfolio. Well, come March of 09, you've now got 600,000 in your portfolio. It's been cut in half. Now you've hit the bottom, but you don't know that. And everybody around you is telling you it's going to go down another two thirds, which is going to take you to Mm 200,000 from your 1.2 million. So the question then becomes is, how do you feel about it at that point? Are you really gonna stay the course at that point? And right. that's, that's what a really ugly market looks like. Uh, this one, at least so far, nobody knows You know, whether the drop is over and we're gonna continue our bullish run or, or whether this is what they call a dead cat bounce. Nobody knows the answer. I know there are a lot of people who claim they know the answer, but nobody does. Yeah, uh, but we'll see. But but that's sort of the thought process, the, the the mental exercise to go through to evaluate what your real tolerance for these things might be.
1: Yeah. And, and you're a big proponent of uh, owning VTSAX TSAX and um, having some bonds as well uh, on the side. Just a, uh, depending maybe what, what would you suggest? I forget. 25 percent or so.
0: Well, I think it depends on on the where you are in your life, so I kind of divide uh, our financial lives into wealth accumulation and wealth preservation, and in the old days, it used to be that that was also largely age-based, mm-hmm. right, so, you know, you worked for, you know, for 40 years or whatever until you were 60, 65, and then you retired, and so that was your wealth building phase. And then when you were old, you were in the wealth preservation phase, but in the financial independence movement, of course, you know, there are a lot of people who are retiring a lot younger than that. There are a lot of people who achieve financial independence who might wind up going back to work after a while or, or founding a business and earning money again. So you might go in and out of those or back and forth between those two phases. So basically, what I say is when you're in the wealth building phase, by that I mean you're earning money. You have an income either from a job or a business, or you are in some fashion trading your labor for money. And so you have a steady cash flow coming in. And in my world, you take a fairly significant amount of that cash flow and you set it aside. You live below your means to free up that capital to invest. And in that stage, I encourage, and this is the stage my daughter's in, by the way, I encourage her to be a hundred percent in VTSAX, which is the total stock market index fund that Vanguard puts out, uh, low cost, owns virtually every publicly traded company in the United States. What that ongoing cash flow from your work provides is a smoothing Effect on the volatility of the market. For instance, in I think it was April when she made her monthly contribution to her VTSAX account, I noticed that it bought 19% more shares than the one the month before because, of course, the market had plunged. Mm -hmm. That's another key point, by the way. When you're young and you're building your wealth, a market drop like the one we've had this spring is an absolute gift because you, as long as you stay the course and keep investing, you are now buying those shares at a lower price. So that effect of having that money going in every month smooths out the volatility of the market. Now, when you stop working and that cash flow from your labor stops and you're living on your portfolio, you're going to want something else to smooth out the ride. At least most, most people are. Some people are going to say, well, you know, I don't care about that. And the research indicates that 100% stocks long-term gives the best performance, so I'm just gonna stay that route. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that, as long as you understand you've you picked a volatile road. But most people wanna smooth it out a little bit, and that's the role bonds then provide. So if you add bonds to the portfolio, then you you have a counterbalance to your stocks. You also have a supply of, of capital to invest when your stock Part of your portfolio drops and you'll do that by bringing your allocation back in line now as to the question as to what percentage ought to be in bonds that really depends on how much you value performance of your portfolio over time against how much you value reducing the volatility and maybe sleeping better at night <laughs> yeah. so you know anytime you add bonds you reduce volatility But long-term, you also reduce performance. Anytime you add stocks, you increase performance long-term, but you also increase volatility. And it's a very individual choice as to to which of those things is more important, and that will determine your asset allocation between stocks and bonds. The One caveat I put on that is that if you let your stock allocation drop below 50%, the 4% rule begins to not work anymore. And we can talk about the 4% rule later if you'd like.
1: Yeah, definitely, I'd like to get into that. Um, But while we're on the topic of uh, VTSAX and and smoothing out the ride, et cetera, I think it's important, like you mentioned, it it is personal, so you do have to see what your risk tolerance is. At least for me, from a personal uh, point of view, or or my my opinion, or what I've gone through is, I owned a stock called AMD when I first started. And, um, you know, I thought that that stock was going to go just keep going higher and higher. Um, And then one day it dropped by 25% in a single day. And um, luckily I didn't have too much money in it. But that's when I realized that I can't stomach stuff like that. And for a single stock, there's too many thoughts that go into my mind, which is um, that company, that one single company is going to could go to zero. And I could lose it all, Um, but so one thing that gave me comfort with BTSAX and just a stock market uh, index fund is that not one single if one single company or two goes to zero, the index as a whole still survives, and you call it self-cleansing. So I thought that that was very powerful because it gives someone confidence to see a dip or a correction and not feel that. It's going to zero because you know that all the companies within the index is not going to go to zero. I mean, that would be apocalyptic. Is that is does that is that what you might gather from the VTSAX? Like, do you think that that would help individual uh, investors do it on their own? I
0: think you're absolutely right, Chris, and I think that's very well well said. Uh, I take great pride in that term, self-cleansing. By the way, which I created, so let me elaborate on that a little bit, because I, I don't think I can add anything more to, to to what you said so well. But by self-cleansing, what I mean is the index, as you point out, uh, holds a lot more than one company. As I mentioned a moment ago, it holds every publicly traded, or virtually every publicly traded company in the United States. That's around 3,600 companies. Now, some of them, uh, by definition, because our capitalist business system is a dynamic system, some of them are going to fall by the wayside. They're not going to succeed. They're not going to work. Um, they might succeed for years and then, and then fall by the wayside, which you know, we've seen as the economy changes. Uh, and those ultimately, they won't even go to zero for our purposes because they'll fall off the index before they get there but they could drop dramatically. And of course, I suppose in one sense, it's a bad thing. It's healthy for the economy. But the other side of that is there are companies that will do spectacularly well. And while the worst thing that can happen to a company is it goes completely out of business, goes to zero, loses 100%, well, the upside isn't limited to 100%. So in a sense, you have a positively rigged system. The worst that can happen to some of the companies you own in the index is they'll lose 100%. The best is they'll gain 100% or 200 or 500 or 10,000. So there's literally no upside. And it's that constant self-cleansing of the index that gives me the confidence to say the market will always go up, even though it'll have dramatic drops periodically, which as we discussed are perfectly natural. The market, as long as there is a United States with a viable economy, the market will always recover from those things and always go up. Because for BTSAX to go out of business like your one company would require basically the United States to go out of business. And as we said at the beginning of the conversation, if you believe that's going to happen, and there are people who believe that, then you shouldn't be investing in the stock market. And you shouldn't be following me or my simple path to wealth. You should probably be stocking
1: canned goods and ammunition yeah building a bunker somewhere yeah um yeah i think uh i think we it's important to try to um decide how you're going to invest based off of the odds you know what are the what is most likely to occur and and like you said over the last 40 years or plus we've gone through a lot of different things and you know some things i didn't witness and and i don't know how bad it was but um, you know wars and 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 inflation, et cetera, so if we've gotten through that and the market has only roared higher, um, just by a percentages, I'd rather be on the side that i'm you know the United States and capitalism will survive. I'd rather bet on that horse than than on the black swan you know uh, cryptocurrency i guess uh, possibility
0: <laughs> well, I think again you're right i you know when you you know, black swans are, are, uh, do happen, and, but by definition, black swans are very, very rare events. And by the way, black swans, and you might say that COVID-19 is a black swan, don't necessarily destroy the system. I mean, they can create havoc. The, the economic collapse in 07-08 was a black swan in a sense, but we survived it. The market always goes up. And that 40-year period, by the way, in, in your show notes, you might want to wanna link to uh, the post I wrote called uh, Time Machine and the Future Return of Stocks. And basically, it was a little thought exercise I had fun with. And said, imagine we were all together back in 1975 when I first started investing. And, and uh, that was in the age of stagflation, which has certainly been the worst economic thing in my lifetime, which was in the 70s into the early 80s. Um, if you were all speculating, well, you know, what do we do? Should we invest in the stock market? And that was a really long, bad stretch for the stock market. And then the thought exercise is, well, I just came back from 2015 and my time machine, and I can tell you what happens in the next 40 years. And I go through the litany of all the terrible things that happened in that 40-year period. And course, my little group in 1975, I said, man, I'm not going near the stock market knowing all that. Well, the stock market posted almost 12% annual gains on average during that horrible 40-year period. And if you go back even further, you know, I just picked that 40-year period because that's when I started investing. But, you know, the stock market has survived world wars and Great Depression and survived the civil war for that matter. Uh, so, you know, there are a lot of horrible things that, that the market has survived. Certainly impacted the market at the time, but as I say, and I think it's part two of my stock series, the stock market always goes up. Yeah,
1: and, and uh, yeah, so once we, you know, establish that BTS BTSAX is the way to go or, or if S&P 500 index funds uh, with low fees is the way to go, I mean, the ideal scenario would be to just invest regularly, make it automatic if possible, and just never to look at it, never touch it. And in 20 to 30 years, then you can take a peek and then be very, very happy with your results. Um, so that, that's the ideal. Uh, but then there are people who, like myself, for example, see a recession or see a crash and want to take advantage of, of the lower prices. What I found myself doing during this crash is waiting. I had a little bit of money and I I waited for it to continue down, continue down. And in each tier I invested to a certain point where I didn't have any left and then it kept going lower. So uh, I had to. So I wrote a post and and I would love your thoughts on it. But I kind of thought that it would be a good idea to put in a system during those times, because although we're not going to sell, that would be the worst idea. Um, There's not much written about how to handle investing um, When it's falling like that. Do you have any thoughts on or or suggestions? What do you what do you think when it comes to doing that? Should you just continue? Should you push it all in and just say You know, we can't time the market. So we don't know Um, What do you think?
0: Well, I would probably say exactly the last thing you said we can't time the market we don't know so what the market is doing has no influence in my investing. You know, I, I think the time to invest is when you have money to invest. And I, I paid no attention to what the market's doing, whether it's going up or, or whether it's going down, uh, I understand the impulse to try to do what you're describing, particularly when it's going down. And, and to do that though, by definition, it means that you have kept money to the side have dry powder in order to do that and the problem with that is the market goes up much more often than it goes down so I have an article about why I don't like dollar-cost investing Now, dollar-cost investing is different than the kind of routine automatic investing we talked about from the cash flow you have coming in from your work right and I guess that's kind of a dollar cost dollar cost investing thing because you're putting in a, an amount every month on a reliable basis. But you're doing that because you don't have any other choice. Dollar cost investing a lump sum is where I don't like it because market goes up three out of four years. Now, problem, of course, it doesn't go up three years and then down a year and then up three years. It's not that regular. But on average, it's 75% more likely to go up at any given period of time than to go down and by the way you can't predict there is no market timing that so the fact that the market may have been going up and up and up for a long time as it had been until the beginning or into the beginning of this year doesn't mean that it's about to go down it could just as easily continue to go up and by the same token when the market began to plunge i had a lot of people commenting on 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 my blog in the comments when i was writing posts saying, well, obviously the market, because COVID is, you know, it's different this time, and obviously the market is going to go down much more than 30% that it's already down. Well, of course, the market didn't do that. It turned around and marched promptly back up. Some wag once said the market will do whatever it takes to embarrass the largest number of people. Uh, That's probably the only reliable thing on it. So I don't think you can predict anything about what the market's going to do. I certainly can't. And the problem with strategies trying to do that means that you have to hold capital to the side in order to have it ready to invest. And the problem with that is then that's unproductive capital that 75% of the time would be earning you a better
1: rate of return. Yeah. And thank thank you for pointing that out. I I, I agree. I think the the right decision is is that, of course, um it's just so interesting how behavior uh, affects you know our our decisions in investing and i mean i obviously know that it's not a good habit to watch cnbc every morning at, at when at 9 30 when they ring the bell but i still do it anyways i, I don't it's know very why. it's a very bad habit <laughs> yes it really is I, I need it's very to stop. dangerous to your wealth <laughs> um but yeah we we've uh so we've established we cannot uh time the market and it's a losing bet to try. You have to be right twice, as you've mentioned in, in your articles. Um, you know, in the midst of, of the COVID plunge,
0: mm-hmm. uh, I, I was just seeing so many people comment about, with, with absolute certainty about how much further the market was gonna go down. I put a tweet up at the time saying, I've noticed there's a new symptom of COVID, clairvoyance. <laughs> Because everybody suddenly seemed to think, well, not everybody, obviously, but so many people seemed to suddenly think that they could see the future as it happened with the stock market. And, of course, the stock market, true to to its uh, ethic of embarrassing the largest number of people, didn't do what everybody expected it to do. And then what was really interesting to me, by the way, is all those commentators were 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 scratching the head and scratching their heads and. Talking about how the market was wrong to be going up, right? (laughs) Right. So it's not. I mean, that's like saying you know the blizzard is wrong to be dropping snow. (laughs) It doesn't. It it doesn't care what your opinion is. You know, the market doesn't care what your opinion is. You know, whatever the market does is what the market does. It's not by definition. It's not right or wrong. It just is what it is.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we clearly saw that. I mean, there was so many signs pointing for it to go down and it just defied all that and said, we don't, you know, the market didn't care. And now it's back up. We'll see where it is. We all think it might go up or down and and it'll do the opposite. So I I think what's important too is um, to build these type of uh, obstacles to, you know, because it's human nature. I think you've mentioned before, we're kind of designed to not do the right thing when the market is going up or when it's going down, we kind of, our natural instincts are to do the wrong thing. So having these barriers in place is important. And one barrier that I've put for myself is the market crash meditation video you made. So <laughs> I'm going to put that in the show notes because I want the audience to check that out. I mean, that is like right there on my favorites so that if there's ever the time that I want to sell, I know I have to watch that video first.
0: <laughs> well, that's probably... I had fun doing it. That came out of uh, a suggestion from one of our Chautauqua attendees, uh, and uh, yeah, so that was uh, that was a lot of fun to put that together. And I, I, uh, we put it together last summer when the market was, of course, rocking and rolling, and there was no end in sight. And mm-hmm. uh, but you know, I, I, again, I can't predict the market, other than I know it's volatile, and I knew at some point <laughs> that video would 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 have a reason to exist
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's uh it's great and so like i said i think everybody should check it out and and have it there just in case um so so jumping into a couple of other posts that you have that are are very popular you know pretty controversial as well is uh the house a a house is a terrible investment So can you explain why you wrote that post? What do you, you know, I, I read it and and I tend to agree, but if you could just explain your your point of view. What's interesting about that post
0: to me is it is the single most popular post that I've, I've ever written based on the number of, of views that it's had. It's the post that's gotten me the most love and it's the <laughs> post that's gotten me the most hate. <laughs> so, Homeownership is, as I say at the beginning of that post, uh, James Altucher had had once said that homeownership is the American religion. And uh, and you don't criticize the American religion without generating a fair amount of hate. Uh, What's interesting to me is I kind of did that post a little bit tongue-in-cheek. It was one of the easiest posts in terms of time and effort that I've ever written. I mean, it was just kind of, this is a little bit fun. It came out of a conversation I'd had at a at some uh, event I'd gone to with a woman who was encouraging her young son uh, to buy a house, you know, and he had no, you know, he wasn't married, and not have kids, you know, young single guy that, I don't know, I just seemed to me there's no particular reason to own a, own a house at that stage of your life. And uh, uh, so I just went through the litany of of again, tongue-in-cheek of, of what the worst possible investment, if we were to sit down and, and think about what's, what are the characteristics of the worst possible investment, and then you list them, and of course, they're all characteristics of buying a house, and we'll let people read the <laughs> post and decide for themselves. Yep. But I hasten to add that I am not against owning houses, per se. I've owned houses for much of my adult life. What I am against is the real estate industry propaganda that it is a good investment, uh, or that it's commonly a good investment? Because it's not. It's a lifestyle decision. I never bought a house, uh, deluding myself that I was making a good investment. I was making a lifestyle decision. I bought houses because that was the lifestyle I wanted to have at the time, and I bought houses I could easily afford. Uh, and I think that's critical: is to buy the least house that, that meets your needs. And again, I shouldn't even say needs, it meets your wants. Because houses don't fulfill needs, they fulfill wants. And that's great if you can afford it and buy it from a position of, what I call a position of power, which means that it takes up the least amount of your resources to buy the house that you need. So I've always bought less house than I could afford uh and it's always been because it served the lifestyle i wanted at the time and i could easily afford it and if from that measure by all means if you want to buy a house buy a house just don't fall prey to the propaganda that you're making some great investment you can you might get lucky uh you know there are times when certain neighborhoods and certain parts of the country you know, the housing market explodes and of course you hear all those stories from people who benefited from that. But then, you know, there's stories like Detroit where everything collapses totally and, you know, buying a house means you lose everything. So, and you tend not to hear those stories so much. People don't brag about that, in the cocktail parties.
1: Yeah. yeah. So it's a,
0: it's a caution. It's not anti-house so much as a cautionary tale.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think that's great advice for, for anyone, because I mean, I, Maybe I need to stop watching TV, but I love HGTV. And <laughs> I see too many uh, young couples getting into a, a larger house than they should. Um, but, uh, but you know, you're brought up to believe that renting is, uh, I was told uh, at a young age, renting is throwing my money away or, you know, it's giving money to the landlord when you could be, you know, paying off the house yourself. Um, so... I think that that propaganda, like you said, is, is rampant and it's the American dream to own a home, but sometimes you have to, like you said, think about whether it makes sense for you um, mm-hmm. and it does put you down. It roots you into a specific location where, you know, maybe you needed or found an opportunity somewhere else. You really can't take advantage of that.
0: Right. Well, when you buy a house, you give up a lot of flexibility that you have when you're, when you're renting, But I think, you know, one of the most common pushbacks that I get, and people, if they, if they go to that post that we're describing, they read it, and there's a, there are probably more comments on that post than anything else I've ever written, and, you know, you hear the, both pro and con, and, uh, and the people uh, arguing uh, in favor of houses, uh, one of the most common arguments they make is, well, owning a house has to be cheaper than renting, because your landlord is building all of his costs into what they're renting to you, and, and plus a profit uh, for him or herself. And therefore, by definition, it has, to be, uh, it has to be more expensive to rent. And that's simply flawed thinking, because rents are not set by a landlord's costs. Rents are set by the market. And if you talk to real estate investors, one of the th- that know what they're doing, one of the things that they will tell you is you make your money when you buy the property, you have to buy a rental property very, very carefully. And in only certain areas, because there's only certain moments and places where owning rental real estate is profitable. And there are many people who don't follow that. And... There are many opportunities. You can go to Toronto now and rent beautiful condos for a fraction of what it would cost you to buy them. Um, You can go to a lot of major cities where where the real estate market is dramatically inflated prices and rent space for dramatically less than you would pay for it. So this idea that by definition uh, it's going to be more expensive to rent because landlords build all of their expenses into it is just nonsense i mean absolute utter silliness (laughs) and and uh, uh but it's it's sort of i don't know i guess it's it's appealing thinking but it's it's shallow and it doesn't take into this account the simple fact that rents are not set by landlords they're set by the market
1: yeah and, uh, and your primary house or uh, primary residence shouldn't be treated as an investment. Um, but getting into to actual options for possible investments, um, you mentioned rental incomes or rental properties. Um, just wanted your quick thoughts on what you thought about REITs uh, or gold, because uh, you hear a lot of talk about them and then hedging versus inflation and things like that. Um, what are you, what are your what's your perspective on that? Is there room for gold or reits in, in a portfolio?
0: So before we go on to that subject, let me make one last comment on on housing and what have you, just to to be clear to anybody who's listen, listening. There are ways, there's a thing called house hacking, mm. which there there are many ways to get in into a house that can be profitable and. House hacking, where you, it was simply means you buy a house and you rent out some of the rooms or what have you. So there are strategies that work, but now you're turning it into an intentional investment and that makes all the difference. Anyway, having said that, um, I used to own REITs When I first started writing the blog, REITs were part of my portfolio, and I I held them uh, as an inflation hedge and with the idea that in periods of high inflation, real estate is one of the things that tends to go up, but as I looked at it more closely, uh, real estate's actually not that great inflation hedge. It's not bad, but it's not great, and it's no better really than owning stocks in general. And of course, when you own something like VTSAX, REITs are part of what you own. By the way, a REIT is, stands for Real Estate Investment Trust, so it's simply a, a um, it's like a little mini mutual fund that invests in some kind of real estate. It might be residential real estate, might be commercial, might be a combination of those things. And anyway, it allows you to own real estate without the headaches of having to manage it yourself. Um, And I owned it for the inflation hedge. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized that it wasn't that great an inflation hedge. And I already had that inflation part covered with my basic stock portfolio. So at that point, I dropped REITs. And I actually have a post on the blog. If you use the search function on my blog, you can put in the show notes called why I stepped away from REITs that goes into that in detail. As for gold, I've I've never, uh, you know, I've, I've never particularly, I've never owned it uh, as an investment. I've I, I guess I understand the appeal, but Gold is dead money. I mean, it, it's you know, you're, it's a classic case where you are buying something, hoping that somebody will pay more for it in the future. And I, I just I don't see any great benefit to it. I've, I've never seen anything to convince me that it's a great inflation hedge. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, and there's two kinds of buyers of gold. There are people who buy it in a portfolio to, to sort of balance out the volatility of the portfolio. And uh, they might hold gold stocks, for instance, to do that or, or things like that. And then there, then there are people who are worried about Armageddon and are, or the total financial collapse of the economy, and they're, they're buying gold to have some, something tangible to, to hold their wealth in. I think the problem with that is that if if we really have an event like that, it's going to be very hard to use your gold uh, as a as a commodity for purchasing things that you you might want or need. And if we have a really major collapse, then the people with the guns are just going to take your gold away from you <laughs> if, if it has value. So, yeah, I've never I've never held it, and and I don't. I don't see a great I think it's it's the kind of thing that you buy because you are guessing that sometime in the future people are gonna pay more for it than you paid for it. And that's kinda of like predicting what an individual stock's gonna do, you know. Yeah. You might be right you might be wrong.
1: So um yeah, I definitely I wanted to propose it because I've heard it. Uh, thrown out there a lot. And I kind of wanted your thoughts and kind of almost to debunk it. I am not a believer in gold myself. I, I agree. I think that it doesn't produce any value, at least with the stocks you're owning companies that earn profits and they pay dividends, et cetera. The gold isn't really, I think Warren Buffett mentioned it as well. He'd rather own a farm than gold uh, because farm can actually produce something, but the gold just sits there. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that,
0: and, and
1: I think that, you know, sometimes uh,
0: people who are making the case for gold uh, point, you know, they, they, they express concern about the dollar, and they point to our enormous national debt and, you know, the possibility of the dollar dramatically dropping in value, being devalued, and I think that's a genuine concern. I mean, that's that's something that, that genuinely makes me nervous is this enormous debt that we're piling on and what it might mean for the dollar going forward. But I don't think gold is necessarily the solution for that. I would rather own stocks. If, if I'm worried about cash, dollars, I'd rather, as Warren Buffett said, own farmland. I'd rather own companies. And I, of course, when you own VTSAX, you own a piece of actual operating companies. Mm -hmm. that's what I would rather exchange my dollars for than some metal that is going to sit in the vault somewhere.
1: Yeah. Uh, Thank you for for bringing that up because that's something that, I mean, I've worried myself and I just don't understand. Uh, You know, I feel like there has to be a tipping point with our national debt and, and with the feds involvement, I mean, with the pandemic, you know, I don't know how many millions or billions were pumped into the market so you hear things like that, and and it's concerning. But I think you hit it right on the head when you said if you own stocks, that's the, one of the best ways you can you can uh, just prepare, I guess, for that. Yeah,
0: I, I I think so, and and I I think you know if if some if people want something to worry about and want something to take action on, or or I, th- I think our national debt is is where young people should be focusing their attention. It's It's amazing to me that there is not a single politician who even talks about it. And it's very rare that you see interviewers when politicians are talking about various spending programs. And, you know, COVID was, I think, $2.2 trillion, the package that they put in place for COVID. And they've been talking about additional packages for trillions more. Mm-hmm. I think I read somewhere that the, the debt this year alone is going to be $10 trillion wow. added to the national budget. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard people advocating for these things saying, well, this is an emergency and you know now's not the time to worry about the debt. Now's the time to deal with the crisis. And okay, I get it. But I would like to hear a little more about how you're going to deal with, with the debt and especially for people in your age group. And it was the same thing, by the way, we, they, you know, the government threw a ton of money at the problem in 07, 08. And then we had, uh, you know, from that time period until the beginning of this year, a terrific run. And we ran up more debt. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, We went deeply into debt to finance World War II. And, but when World War II ended, and the good times came back again, that debt was paid down. Well, in 07, 08, we put a lot of money in to solve that problem. Probably the right thing to do in my opinion, but then we had a decade plus of wonderful times and we did nothing but spend more money and now we're in another crisis and it's just, um, yeah, I, I, that's, that's I, I'd like to see politicians being asked a whole lot more intense questions about how are you going to pay for all this and how, you know, what, what is going to, how is this going to be handled going forward? And it's not going to matter to me. I'm an old guy. I'll be dead. But <laughs> it's going to matter to you, Chris, and a lot of your listeners, I would think. And those are the questions I'd, I'd be asking the politicians.
1: Definitely. I, I think it's important and, and for politicians to be fiscally responsible. I mean, I know it's not what necessarily gets votes, but it's what's right. So, well, the um,
0: only reason it doesn't get votes is because I think voters don't see the problem, true. and you know they're not financially savvy enough to see the problem, and and uh, you know I, politicians know that they'll get more votes by promising programs that give you stuff,
1: right? And right.
0: then you know any financial responsibility. So you know.
1: Well. Yeah, um, we'll see what happens with that and I think switching topics to something a little bit more uh uplifting, I want to talk <laughs> about FU money <laughs> because you have brought FU money to the forefront in the fire community. That's where I originally found it and uh you made a, a video on it as well, which is like I think you should what do they give Oscars or Grammys? I, I <laughs> you deserve one because that was amazing. Oh thank you
0: that was, that was an enormous amount of fun to do that, that also that also came out of Chautauqua the uh, uh, when I saw that movie the gambler mm-hmm. and uh, which stars John Goodman by the way, it's not a very good movie but but there's this wonderful scene in it with John Goodman where he's he's talking about F.U. money and in my post when I did my version I have his version there a very a moment I saw that I knew that I wanted to rewrite it a little bit to, to my ethic, but that I wanted to record it. But I didn't know anybody at the time who knew how to make films and went to one of our Chautauquas, which are these annual financial uh, retreats that we hold. And, and sure enough, there was a, a couple who were filmmakers who attended. And I was living in New Hampshire at the time, and they were down around Boston just an hour away. So they graciously came up and, and uh, made it happen and uh, it was a lot of fun yeah yeah. not that, suitable for work as the saying goes by the way
1: <laughs> yes exactly and and i almost opened it up at work but i said let me listen to it at home and, and i was laughing so hard so that was a good one um and and you brought up Ch- chautauqua what's uh can you give the listeners and and the fire community an update or what's going on with that this year or if there's
0: yeah so maybe I'd, i i would real briefly tell your listeners what it is because it's yep. very possible there are people out there who are wondering well, what's the Chautauqua keeps referring to yep so uh Chautauqua is a, is an event I created back in 2012 we held the first one in 2013 we've done it every year since until this year we've we've had a we've had a put it on hiatus for because of COVID for this year but basically uh uh, we go to some, my concept behind it was to go to a cool place, uh, hang out with cool people and talk about cool stuff. And, sounds cool. <laughs> and that sounds cool. And that's, <laughs> by the way, all three of those things are my, defi- my definition of what a cool place is, who cool people are and what cool stuff is. It's a very selfish kind of thing. <laughs> but fortunately for me, I, I was talking to my partners, uh, Al and Katie, who helped run it. And they were telling me that we now have 4,000 people on our mailing list for this. Wow. And what's interesting about that is one of the parts of the magic of talk was we limit the attendees to 30 people at any one event. And we only do two or three of them a year when we're doing them. So, you know, less than 100 people a year get to go on these. Um, and it's just first come, first serve. But, mm-hmm. yeah, we go to some cool place. We are... Currently scouting Croatia for next year. Nice. And, uh, yeah, if we can find the right venue, the right cool place, then mm-hmm. we'll go there. And uh, by definition, Chautauqua seems to attract cool people, and uh, it attracts. And I've written a lot about Chautauqua over the years, and you know you can find that on my blog. There's a little, there's a little subject thing on the right hand column, and Chautauqua was one of them. But one of the cool things about it is you could not ask for a more diverse group of people uh, based on any kind of of diversity measure you want to look at. I mean certainly by gender you we know, have men and women by sexual orientation, by race, by religion, by age, by wealth. We've had some extraordinarily wealthy people. We've had some people who are just at the beginning of the journey and but they all come together and get along famously because they all have this, this FI thing in common, uh, whether they've achieved it or they're just beginning or they're somewhere on the journey. And it's a, it's a really cool thing uh, to see. And it, it attracts really, really interesting people. And, uh, so, um, uh, Christie and Bryce who are another part of the team and, and speakers at it every year, uh, they write millennial revolution and, they're nomad. They're nomads, and their life now, because they've been part of this for I don't know. They came on board, I think, in 2017, maybe. Uh, you know, so their their life revolves around visiting Chautauquans that they've they've met and helped as they travel around the world. So yeah, it's it's a really, it's a really cool thing, and everybody who's ever attended has told me that it's either one of the best weeks of their life or the single best week of their life, which is very gratifying. And the coolest thing about it is from what they tell me is, is they get for the, maybe the first time to meet and hang out with people who get it. They don't have to explain themselves. Yeah. You know? And most of us on this FI journey are, it's not supported by the people in our day-to-day lives and we'll, don't really understand it don't appreciate it so there's something very gratifying to come to a place where everybody already gets it conversation just starts immediately at a different level
1: yeah that's uh definitely on my list i want to i want to definitely make it out one of these years hopefully next year and um yeah i think it's it's been amazing the people that you meet in the fire community everybody is has been welcoming and and, uh, genuinely nice. Um, So that's one thing that I love about our community aside from all the amazing personal finance tips and, you know, life changing advice that you get. It's, yeah, uh, it
0: it crosses barriers that, that, you know, we don't typically cross in our day-to-day life, whether they're their age or race or, Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it, you know, the FI community in general is an amazing community in that regard. And Chautauqua is, yeah, you know, I, I'm fond of saying the only group of people who don't come to Chautauqua are bigots. <laughs> because if yeah. you're a bigot, you're not going to want to be at Chautauqua because it's, <laughs> it's a very diverse experience. But that's literally the only group who don't come. Yeah. And, and I'm you know, okay with that. <laughs> and I'm okay with that, too. And by the way, that's not political. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have people who have come who are very far on the right side of the political spectrum and those who are very far on the left and everywhere in between. Everywhere in between. Uh, but, yeah,
1: the only people who don't show up are bigots. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Let's, let's leave not, it at that. <laughs> I'm all right with that. <laughs> um well, so to conclude, I think it'll be important to kind of we covered a lot of ground and we kind of touched a lot of bases. so I think what I wanna conclude with is leaving the audience with your nine basic principles uh that you have on your on your blog and and this is something that I think you wanted to make sure your daughter understood. is that right because you realize that she's not very into personal finance like we might be, and you know we are the weirdos, not, not them. So, so you realized, okay, we got to make it simple and just, you know, you created these nine basic principles. So I'd like to go over them and um, leave the audience with that. And then if you want any thoughts, you can, you can chime in anytime. Um, So the, the first one is avoid fiscally irresponsible people, never marry one or otherwise give him, access to your money. I love how it said him. Uh, oh, it says you're writing for your daughter. Right, right. I (laughs) mean
0: Yeah. So I it's important to remember that all everything I write is aimed at at my daughter. Mm -hmm. And I've I'm fond of saying I've only ever tried to convince one person of this. And that's my daughter. And the fact that other people have found it useful and helpful and life changing is very gratifying. Uh, but by the same token, when people come along and want to argue with me about it, I you know I don't care <laughs> you know, if, if if what I say doesn't resonate with you. I, that's fine. Don't do it. Right, right. You know, go go do whatever does resonate with you. I'm not the least bit interested in trying to persuade anybody of anything other than my daughter. And by the way, job done. She um, is nice. she is on the path. She's still not not uh, as interested in this stuff as we are, but you know she knows what she needs to know to make it work for her, and that's what the simple path is all about if you get a few simple things right then you don't have to spend all your time worrying about money and yeah. thinking about money i like thinking about money and you like thinking about it. maybe a lot of our listeners do but to be successful you just have to get a few things right
1: perfect yep um uh, the second one here is avoid money managers It's your money and no one will care for it better than you. The third principle here is simple, avoid debt. The fourth principle here is save a portion of every dollar you get. So paying yourself first. Uh, The fifth principle, which I love, is the greater the percentage of your income you save and invest, the sooner you'll have F you money. Try 50%. With no debt, this is perfectly doable. Six is put your money in the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, or VTSAX. This is the fund you already own. You're talking to your daughter, so just keep adding to it. Seven, realize the market and the value of your shares will sometimes dramatically drop. People all around you will panic. They'll scream, sell, sell, sell. Just ignore this. Even better, buy more. Number eight, when you can live off the dividends of VTSAX that VTSAX provides, you are financially free. And number nine, the less you need, the freer you are. So those are the nine basic principles. And I think that just like your daughter, uh, you know, living based off of that, I think the audience can totally. I mean, that's all you really need, I think.
0: Yeah. And in many ways, the, the blog and the book is just an elaboration of those those concepts. Mm-hmm. And not surprisingly, you know, I've, there are several of them that I've gotten pushback on you know, because this is a path that, that just doesn't resonate with the average the average person. So, you know, you say save fifty percent of your income to the average person who doesn't have any context for this and their head explodes. Right, right. You know? Yeah, so all right. you say it to the average FI person and they say 50%, I'm shooting for 80%. You know?
1: <laughs> Overachievers, <So>. of course. <laughs> exactly. Um, All right. Well, JL, thank you so much for joining. I want to end with just a question. If there's anything that you have coming up or you'd like to share with the audience, anything new or interesting, by all means, uh I would love to hear it.
0: Well, so uh, anybody who's interested in the blog can go to jlcollinsnh.com. That's the blog, and there's a link to the book on Amazon there if they're interested in the book. Um, the only thing that occurs to me is I was I was just, and this is the first time I've, I've mentioned this in public, it's literally a conversation I just had a couple of days ago uh, with Alan and Katie, my Chautauqua partners, as we talked about a moment ago, we're not doing Chautauqua this year because of COVID. But they had suggested maybe we do some mini kind of Chautauqua online for the four thousand people who who have are on the mailing list. And even if we are doing Chautauqua because so few we have so few available slots, most of those four thousand would never be able to come. So if any of your readers or your listeners rather are interested in getting a taste of Chautauqua, uh, sign up on the mailing list and we might well be doing, I don't, can't promise it because it's still just a thought at the moment, but sometime this year we might be doing something virtual that All won't right. be the same, but it'll be a taste.
1: Yep, no, I highly encourage it. Like a lot of things in this world nowadays, it's going virtual, which is exciting. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll be signing up, so I hope everybody else does too. Oh, well, good.
0: Well, don't sign up unless, you, unless it really appeals to you, but if it does, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, JL, thank you so much for joining the show. Once again, it's a pleasure. And um, I hope the audience got just as much value from this show then than, as, as I did. So thank you again.
0: Well, I, I appreciate the invitation. And it's been a lot of fun chatting with you. And, and like you, I, I hope your listeners enjoy it as well.
1: All right. Take care, JL. Uh- so I hope this episode was as useful to you as it was for me. If you would like to help the show, here's how you can do it. First, Subscribe and leave a review on any platform where you listen to the show. This will also enter you into our giveaway where I announce a winner each episode. Second, share this podcast with a friend. Lastly, you can help me continue to bring you amazing content by becoming a supporter of the show. There will be a link in the show notes below. That link takes you to anchor.fm forward slash inspire to fire forward slash support. And even a small contribution helps. As a thank you, I will send you all my fire resources and give you a shout out on the next episode. Until next time, thank you for listening and have a great day.